So we are now on conversation number number 407. This is this beautiful story about Radha and Krishna. And the entire um, story is in quotes, meaning that Swamiji is just telling the story as Master told it to him. There is a legend that the gopis once grew jealous of Radha, who seemed to them more in Krishna's favor than the rest of them. One day he decided to teach them a lesson. Radha wasn't present. Krishna pretended to be seized by a terrible headache. How can we help you, Lord? The gopis all cried. Whatever we can do, we'll do it gladly. Krishna, groaning, said, If one of you will only press her feet on my head, my headache will go away. The gopis were aghast. In India, even to sit with one's feet pointed toward an older person or toward someone revered is considered an act of disrespect. To touch that person with one's feet is considered an insult. And to touch the Lord incarnate with one's feet and horror of horrors on the head would be almost the ultimate blasphemy. The gopis received his answer with the utmost dismay. Yet, meanwhile, Krishna's headache kept getting worse. Radha then appeared. When she learned of the Lord's distress, distress, she ran to him crying, Can't I help you in some way? Yes, Krishna said. If you will only press your feet on my head, I will find relief. But of course, Lord, she cried. Instantly, immediately, she began pressing her feet on his head. The others cried out in horror at this outrage. What is the matter? She inquired. You placed your feet on the head of the Lord of the universe. For such a great sin, you will go to hell. Is that all that's bothering you? Radha scoffed. If putting my feet on his head will send me to hell, I will gladly go there. It will remain my joy that I gave the Lord even one moment of relief. And then the others understood. They had been placing their own well-being ahead of Krishna's needs. Seeing Radha's absorption in the well-being of Krishna, even at the cost of her own salvation, they bowed humbly before her. They recognized now the greatness of her love compared to their own. I was engaged in an interesting conversation uh, when I was in Mumbai just a couple of weeks ago because I just returned. Um, I was just having tea with a young couple there and um, both were Indian raised but um, not everything is understood just because you're born in that country. So the girl asked the question Uh, Radha was, Krishna was raised by a foster mother, to go back farther, Krishna's uncle Kamsa was told that the eighth child of his sister uh, would be his nemesis, and that he would be, he was an evil tyrant, and he would be killed by, I believe, the eighth, or was it the ninth child of his sister Devaki. So his sister um, was, the, the uncle imprisoned her, and killed every one of her children. But when Krishna was actually born by a magic spell, you know, by the intercession of divine forces, um, her husband was able to 
spirit Krishna out of the prison and deliver her to deliver him to foster parents and those foster parents raised him Yashoda was his foster mother so he had his whole childhood until he became a man um, living as a as a cow herd in Rindavan in the country and the gopis were the uh, the milkmaids and the gopas were the milkmen and Radha was first among them and so this enormous romance divine romance of Krishna and all the gopis and Krishna and Radha all took place and then when he reached manhood his uh, father came to get him his true father came to get him or his brother or his uncle or somebody came to get him and took him back to become the ruler of his kingdom and he never saw the gopis or Radha again that was sort of the the whole story that everybody thinks about was just the beginning of his life and then he was taken to his kingdom and he took at least one perhaps several wives and one of the wives he took was Rukmini and so she was one of his well-known wives that's just the whole context of it Um, it is said that the gopis and the gopas were um, rishis who desired to be able to have a romance with the Lord and so they incarnated with him in this little village so they were not ordinary um, men and women or boys and girls they were very high souls Anandamoy Ma once was troubled by a fly that kept landing on her face her devotees kept swatting it away she said leave it she said it's a saint who desired to be close to this body for a time (laughs) and so he came in that way Ramana Maharshi I've spoken of it before there was a cow who was one of his most devoted disciples and it was understood in the ashram that the cow was a reincarnation of this peasant woman who had helped taken care of Ramana before before the ashram was built when he was just living as a sadhu in the cave on the hill there uh, Arunchala where he lived and she used to feed him she used to harvest wild greens and cook for him and then she reincarnated as a cow because it gave her certain privileges and certain freedom it's a totally fabulous and interesting story someone said no relatives no family responsibility no ashram politics (laughs) there is a uh, an hour and a half story told by a man unfortunately whose name I can't quite remember his first name is David I want to say Goldman but I don't think that's quite his name who is both a devotee of Ramana Maharshi and also a historian of the ashram. Fascinating. He tells the whole story of Lakshmi the cow. It's so much more complicated and so much more interesting than you can imagine. It's really, it's well worth finding on YouTube, I'm sure, if you look. It's just this, a man, uh, he's either British or Australian, I think he's British. He's just sitting there in a chair and he tells the story and then they show historical pictures absolutely treasure treasure so going right along sometimes the things that happen around holy men do not follow any kind of a normal pattern so we start with that so this woman who was uh, speaking uh, we were having tea with she said why does Radha get all the attention she was just his girlfriend what about Rukmini who was actually his wife <laughs> and I was actually like I had to stop and think about it for a minute. I was with Shurjo, Narayani's husband, Shurjo, and um, this other man, man named Gitesh, 
both of whom are reasonably knowledgeable. Well, sure, they're both actually very knowledgeable about the scriptures, although Jitesh, I think, knew more about the Ramayana. So first I spent some time, like, verifying, was this really true? I knew that she had been his wife, Rukmini, but, you know, is it true that she got no attention? Did nobody ever praise her? You know, the wifely duty is considered to be so important. How come this girlfriend from his youth, you know, is the only one that anybody talks about? I mean, she presented the question like that. This is also something that um, you get used to in India. I remember when um, we first started traveling to India in 1986. And it, it, it was the first, my first trip was on this pilgrimage tour that we actually led. And our guide was a wonderful man who's still a very dear friend named Sanjay Aurora. Sanjay was 24 at that time. And uh, he was my first Indian friend, the first person I really got to know who'd been raised in that culture. So I learned a lot about the Indian culture from him. And just, you know, I'd never been, um, I'd hardly traveled. Well, I'd been to Europe by that point, but... But I, one of the things that was so interesting about Sanjay was, and he was a very westernized, is a very westernized Indian. He moves very easily through multiple cultures. He's not, he's not defined by his culture, but he's, he's very much a, he's very aware of his culture. He's very, very uh, the product of it. But he would talk about the gods and the goddesses and various of the heroes from the epics, and we would discuss them as we would discuss anybody else that we knew, <laughs> you know, as to why Shiva responded like that and, you know, and how Parvati felt about something and how confusing it was, Brahma and Saraswati and you know, just things like this. And, and the way it would be discussed was uh, fascinating to me because he was not a, a credulous villager. He's a highly educated uh, multicultural person. But these characters are so integral to their understanding of life and they understand life by the example set by these characters. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Master talks about how his mother would summon examples from the Ramayana and Mahabharata when moral lessons were required because children would listen. They'd be interested. And a lot of the stories have elements like in the Ramayana uh, Ram, uh, Lord Rama's chief disciple is Hanuman, who's a monkey. I mean, is, is he like, he's not an ordinary monkey, obviously, but he's nonetheless, he's a monkey and he has a monkey army and one can draw symbology from it, but it's also, he was a monkey. So it's this whole story, you can get people really captured by it. I, I'm just riffing off of this for a moment here. There's a temple outside of Delhi um, we call, always called it, I think it's in, I think the place is called Chadapur. We always called it the Chadapur Temple. It actually has another name. I can't remember now the um, holy person who was the focal point of it. Baba Nagpal. Baba Nagpal. Exactly, there it is. Um, and, there, and it's a huge complex. And one of the temples, and there's a lot of really good sculpture in that temple. I don't know who the artists were, but and there was one temple that I was sitting in that was a big round temple. And I don't know which epic it was, but it was illustrated with, with sculpture, with bas-relief and the wall, like this all around. And I was just sitting there because it was a lovely atmosphere. And a group of people in India, what you'll say is it would be a group of villagers, is how you would describe it. 
which would mean people who had less education usually did not speak any English. They spoke whatever was the indigenous language. And I watched this group of villagers, and they would look at the pictures, and the picture, they knew the whole story. And so they had so much fun looking at a picture, and then I could tell that they were all talking about what the picture represented, and they could walk around the whole temple and have the whole experience of this, you know, great epic um, without a single word because it had been, uh, was part of their oral tradition, and so, so much so that the photograph, not the photograph, the sculpture itself would tell them. So it was very devotional, very devotional pilgrimage for them um, just through the art. It, it, was, it was a marvelous thing for me to appreciate. You know, it's always tremendously beneficial to break out of your mindset and, and realize that what you think of as, is central, like language and words, isn't. <laughs> There's just lot, I mean, written words and so on. There's lots of other ways to know things. So we're here at the table and we want to understand why Radha gets all the attention and Rupmini doesn't because the wife should be more honored than that. So I thought it was fascinating and after I chatted with the, the uh, three Indian people, including her, but the two men were more knowledgeable to make sure that it was in fact true because sometimes what people say isn't true. And I'm not... Um, I know a lot about Krishna and the Mahabharata, but good heavens, what I don't know is so much bigger than what I do know. I didn't want to wade in. So we established that, in fact, her complaint was valid. <laughs> so I tried, I tried to really think about why, in fact, that might be true. So I remembered something that's always been extremely dear to me, which is not, is not always obvious to people even on this path, that Master has that prayer that we recite. And what Master is reciting, not quite all of them, but there's, there's what's considered to be the classic bhavs in worshiping God. Bhav is a, an untranslatable Sanskrit word. B-H-A-V is how they write it phonetically. Bhav. And bhav is the spiritual mood. Mood is a, the best word you can think of. The spiritual mood, the spiritual attitude, the feeling that you bring to your worship and how you actually relate to God. Because the Indian teaching is so subtle. It's so much different. In, in, see, in, in the West, we say the word God and we have no idea, really. It means nothing. People say they don't believe in God, but they have developed some idea in their head of what that word means, and then they have rejected that idea. Because if you step back from it, where is it defined? I mean, if you say elbow, everybody knows what the elbow is. If you say book, people can know what a book is. But when you say God, you go somewhere and you figure it out or you think about it or someone tells you. But there's no inherent, <coughs> agreed upon, recognized definition of the word. And if you're Christian, you can be devoted to Jesus. And if you're inclined, you can be devoted to the Virgin Mary, Mother Mary. Um, there's a plethora of saints. If you go into the Catholic tradition, you can have Mary's husband, Joseph. You know, you have a few of these. Um, but still, it's all specific individuals in various ways. The Eastern way of talking about it is that they're, they're basically classic ways to express love. And since our relationship to God is our foundational love relationship, 
And everything in this world is a symbol of the higher world. That's just so hard for them to get the mind around. The first time I read that, or Swami said it, I, he said, even the sun, he said, is a symbol of the spiritual eye. And, you know, when you think of the immensity of the sun, and you think of its absolute um, essential centrality to life itself, to actually think of it as a symbol, that it it doesn't really have lasting meaning in itself, but is put there only to give us the concept of the divine light that shines within us. It, It just, it takes the whole way that we think about life and just turns it. I mean, if you say everything here is a symbol of a higher reality, that means that nothing here actually has the meaning that it appears to have. It's only a doorway to something else. When we put the spiritual eye above our altar here, the intention of doing that was to help explain why there were pictures of the masters and to help explain who the masters were, that the spiritual eye represents the Christ con- is is the doorway to Christ consciousness and the masters emanate from the spiritual eye. So we wanted it and we had our architecture of our temple allows this but we wanted the spiritual eye to be above the masters and we wanted it to at least look as big as the masters. We made it in our, on our altar as big as the architecture would allow us to make it. But there was some question at the time as to whether or not because it hadn't been done before within the Ananda context we were just this was 19 somewhere in the 90s and Ananda was just beginning to expand and build and develop Um, and some people were concerned that it was just too big and so Swami came in came to visit and I deliberately brought him in through the front door first actually before we actually did it because I couldn't get anybody to really understand what I was seeing in my mind. So I got some big pieces of cardboard and some shiny Christmas wrapping paper. And I made one out of cardboard and wrapping paper of the size that I was thinking. And I pasted it up on the altar so that everybody could see that it could work. Um, And then Swami came in. He came to visit and I brought him into the temple to look at it. And I said, what do you think? Is it too big? He gave two instructions just interestingly. One, he said, you, you should, if you're going to put it like that on the altar, you should place it in such a way that you have to look up to see it. And then the second thing is, he said, it should look big enough that you can walk into it. <laughs> and we had, the, you know, we had a long ways to go before that, so he had no objection to it being quite large. It, it was part of it because it is, it's a, it's, the sun is a symbol of the spiritual eye. So that gives a, an idea of how it should dominate our reality. Okay, so, um, yes. So, everything being a symbol in this world, um, there are classic bobs, which is ways that you can relate to God. And devotees often um, feel inclined toward one or another of those bobs. And and the bobs are contained, almost all of them, in the prayer that Master has us say. Heavenly Father, which is God as the Father, and me as his child. Divine Mother, which is God as the Mother, and the devotee as his child. Friend, which is um, 
uh, Master said that friendship is the, is the highest form of love, which is an interesting comment, because it's uh, completely without coercion. Friends, friends are freely chosen, and all responsibility that one takes for one's friend is from the heart. You know, even Swam, as people often say, that motherly love is sacrificial, but if a woman becomes pregnant, she has no choice as to whether she's going to sacrifice her very body for that baby to grow. It's compelled. And even once the child is born, the child is helpless. The mother is compelled to take care of it unless she's monstrous. She just will because she has to. But a friend can walk in or out of that relationship at any point. And that's why in the Bible Jesus said, you call me master, but I call you friend. He was asking them to rise. He said the servant will, will do as his master bids, but the, servant, the, the servant's life is in the village. And he never really takes the master's reality as his own, but the friend embraces the friend's life and needs as his own needs. So you have friend, and then in our prayer it gets garbled because we say friend, beloved God. So it sounds like we're, that beloved is a descriptive word and that we're using our friend is beloved God. But beloved is above. It's the romantic. It's, the rom- it's romantic love. And romantic love for many, many people, you might even say for most people, is an extremely compelling and exceedingly attractive form of love. It's also, um, how do I say, it's dicey. <laughs> but uh, it is, it's a, it's a classic Bob. And uh, also then servant to master. But, and then so we say then great guru, master, servant to master. The one that's not uh, in the prayer, and I think it's partly because it, it was too, probably master didn't feel he could, he could introduce it. Now I'm speculating on all of this because I don't really have this explained which is God as your child. Instead of you as a child of God, God as your child. Because think about that. After romantic love or before romantic love or even more powerfully compelling than romantic love is the parent's desire to care for the child. So that is a classic Bob. And that's why many of the deities, and conceivably all of the deities, that you see in India, when they have the murtis, the little figures that represent them, they'll have the grown-up version and then they'll have the baby version. Uh, most famous is baby Krishna. You have Gopal. Gopal is like Krishna as a baby. And you have all these images, the murtis and the pictures and so on, of Krishna as a little baby. And you have all these stories of, of him and his foster mother, Yashoda, and uh, how she had to care for him and she had to take care of the Lord. And she's explaining to us that Bob, how, how you take care of God as a baby. In America, you see, we have it at Christmas. At Christmas time, we have the baby Jesus. And what's so uh, impressive to me is that the, the mood that comes over people at Christmas time is, I think it's, it's a sweet, a certain sweetness because we're thinking about Jesus as a little baby. And the, the ability 
to love freely from your heart around little babies. Not everyone likes babies, but almost everyone is drawn. And you just don't, you're uninhibited in your affection for the baby. And the baby is uninhibited in his affection for you. My friend before his, one of my friends before his sons were born, he swore he wouldn't be one of those foolish papas who would behave in such a ridiculous manner to please his child. Once his baby was born, he said he couldn't have cared less about his personal dignity. <laughs> he just did everything he could to please his sons and, and was perfectly happy doing it. And that's a divine bhav, is to feel that way. There's a, speaking of stories, there's an extraordinary story in the life of Sri Ramakrishna about one of his disciples who was called uh, uh, Gopal Ma, I think is what she was called. Yes, Gopal Ma, she must have been called that. She was a Brahmin widow who'd been widowed very young and lived by the Ganges near the temple where Ramakrishna lived. She was there before he was there. And she, her, her, her Ishtadeva, her chosen deity, was the baby Gopal. And being a Brahmin widow, she followed an extremely strict routine and had followed it for decades of, of puja and worship. And when you actually um, awaken a murti, I mean, a murti is just a statue, until you awaken it. And then once it's awakened, it's, it's incumbent for the rest of the time that the murti exists that the proper... Uh, ceremonies be carried out because now it's the living presence of God. You have to feed it, you have to bathe it, you have to clothe it, you have to give it rest, you have to put it to bed at night and you just do this. And so this woman who by the time Ramakrishna was there was elderly had been for decades living alone but not really because she had baby Gopal that she took care of all the time. And she was a very um, pious and pure-hearted person and became very devoted to Ramakrishna and often saw in him baby Gopal. And so she would sometimes mother Ramakrishna and Ramakrishna would behave then like a baby with her. I mean, Ramakrishna's life is full of marvelous stories and this is one of them. And so this was something that was going on. And then at a certain point for, uh, for the, the woman, Gopal Ma, uh, suddenly the Murti came alive. And she was, no, she was no longer dealing with the Murti, she was dealing with a living child. Now, no one else could see it except her, but she could see it. And all of a sudden, her complete routine was set, was destroyed because she had a mischievous little child crawling around, just like the stories of Krishna. And, you know, she would upset her, her um, puja pieces and she would, he would interrupt what she was doing and he would you know, desecrate the, the things and he would give her no peace and he wouldn't let her do her japa. And, and, you know, she was just completely disheveled and she goes running to Ramakrishna with the baby. You know, it's just, it's an amazing story. And Ramakrishna, of course, could see the baby. And then, that, I mean, perhaps that was the time which when she comes with the baby, then she sees the baby disappear into Ramakrishna and then the baby comes back to her. It's amazing story. And, this goes on for like a few months for her. And then she, I don't think she lived much longer, but it was the culmination of a lifetime of worship. She got to take care of the baby Krishna because that's what she'd been doing all of her life. Now, I don't think Master 
And again, I really don't know whether Master thought this through or not. But he, I, how would you pray to a baby? God is your child. It would be just too far out for Westerners, except that we do it at Christmas. And St. Joseph of Cupertino, at least, and there may well have been others, um, who was a Franciscan and a, a great, a very great saint. And for a period of time, because he levitated and did other things that were inconvenient, he was uh, uh, confined to quarters <laughs> in a certain cell under the in the ground un, in the underground floor of the Basilica of Saint Francis in Assisi. And at various times, when you go to visit there, maybe they keep it open all the time. But our friends knew, knew the priests who would open the doors, and so were these, there were these rooms where he lived in seclusion for a long time, and he had a little baby. Jesus and it was it was part of his personal devotion was this baby Jesus that was his Ishtadeva Jesus in that form it's very your mind can go in many beautiful directions when you think about it so but but husband and wife is implied by beloved but beloved is talking in a different way so and and for this reason so when I, when I started, again, going back to the tea table conversation, I started trying to think it through. And especially in those times, but really at all times, the relationship between a husband and wife, you know, may be a, a romance. But especially in the context of a traditional society, which is when Krishna lived, but in the Indian society in general, and truthfully, in all balanced societies, ours not being a very balanced society, you know, marriage is is not is not a solitary romance between one between two people. It's a, it's a social contract. It often involves families. It often involves many considerations other than the personal passion of two people involved. Especially Krishna's marriage, it doesn't mean that he didn't love his wife or that his wife didn't love him. But once she married him, she was also the queen. She soon became the mother of his children. She was a daughter to, you know, his parents. And just, you know, all these other forms come in. And once the marriage contract is, is executed like that, then, one, then duty is also a huge part of it, which is also not a very popular word in the West. But duty comes into it, and it's, it's a, a defined role that one accepts. Um, I, it's it's popular these day to, days to uh, look with a great deal of skepticism on arranged marriages where people marry without knowing each other, where the where the parents choose and so on. When we first started going to India, I must say we must have asked people that question more than anything else because we just, as young Americans, we were just we simply did not know how to get our minds around it. We were so steeped in romance. But I've read in other places, you have to realize that such a system came from a higher age when there was more stability in society as a whole. Swami commented that in a transition age like we're in right now, where we're moving, where we're finishing, we have finished Kali, but we're speeding our way into Dwapara, everything moves so fast and there's so much change. Swami, I can't remember where I read this, but Swami commented, 
you know, about the high, the high number of divorces that are just common in uh, the age in which we live. He said it's because society is changing so fast. He said it used to be that a couple could marry young and they would, they would follow a fairly predictable course till the end of their lives. So if, there was, if it was a match at the beginning, it would generally stay a match to the end. Whereas now when times are changing so fast, people can start at one place in their life and have two or three, you know, multiple cycles. What to speak of changing countries and changing cultures and being exposed to all kinds of choices. And then as the strictures of society begin to weaken without there being any corresponding inner moral authority yet, just all all options are open. So... um, uh, let's see, what was I going to say? So a great deal of the... Uh, oh, but in a, in, a, in a higher age where we're not shifting so quickly and, and, there, and all of society is wisdom-guided instead of uh, whimsy-guided, you know, more or less as we are now. And there is actual discernible authority, spiritual authority, even astrological authority where a person's inner karma can be discerned from their horoscope and the course of their life can be predicted, it's possible then that a marriage can be arranged with enough um, intuitive understanding and spiritual perception that these can be very harmonious and positive. And even if the marriages, and this was just very interesting to me, even if, if the marriages are arranged very young, and this is all an explanation of something that, that has been such a long tradition in India that it seems so incomprehensible to the West. I'm spending a little time talking about it because there is, there is a, a wisdom behind it. I mean, all of us who are more than 21 know that at the age of 21, one doesn't know as much about life as one thinks one does and doesn't understand lasting values and what, what really makes for enduring harmony, as well as someone who's had a little more experience does. Now, just because someone are your parents, it doesn't mean they're really wise enough to make that decision. But in a higher age and a more stable society, you could see how that could work. And then this explanation I read added in that if from a relatively young age, it was known who you're, where you would spend your adult life. I mean, multiple things can happen. For one thing, in the society where the woman goes to live with the, the man's family, she can get to know those people. And they can also partially raise her. So she can actually be raised in the same values and the same pattern that her husband is raised in. So that when she merges his life with her, um, then it won't be a shock it won't be a wrench, and everybody will know. It, 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 all of it creates harmony and stability and a deeper kind of love. It needs to be said, you know, a deeper kind of love based on more than just uh, a passing attraction, based on a real sense of shared values. I'm just going to throw in here because I'm talking about this and because I know how feminist reactions are. Um, in, uh, in the time tunnel which is a, a fictional book that Swamiji wrote toward the end of his life, which is actually, it's, it's sort of a children's story. It's like a, a medium age. It's not for little ones. Um, 
And it's the story about these two young brothers who stumble upon a wrecked laboratory and they find a tunnel and that tunnel turns out to be a, um, a gateway forward and backward in time. So then Swami has these two young boys meet a, a, a time traveler there who takes them here and there, a wonderful man named Hans, who actually had been responsible for the laboratory and had built the time tunnel and all of this. But the whole thing being fiction, I, I talked to Swami later about it, I said, I can see the incredible relaxation of writing fiction because you can just uh, use your intuition to describe things and you don't have to justify it at all. You can just declare it. And if people don't want to believe you, they can consider it fantasy. I mean, I felt Swami's talking about Egypt and he, he talked about how the, the pyramids were actually built through the power of sound. And he describes in that book um, how they, they moved the stones and put them in place with melody and tone because sound has more power. That We're just beginning to discover what the power of sound is. So it wasn't, you know, all those slaves pushing them up ramps. They were just levitated into place by the power of sound. And he didn't have to justify it. He could just declare it. <laughs> and he had Atlantis, and, and he went forward in time. So the end of all of this, the end of the story, is that they go forward in time to a higher age, and Hans falls in love and decides to stay in that time. And he moves in to the uh, home of his wife. And so Swami editorializes a little, and he suggests, he said, he thinks it would be harmonious and better if when a couple married, that they went to live with the wife's family. Because he, and, and from my travels in India and my, my discussions with people's lives, a mother is very possessive of her son and is inclined to be jealous of the attention given to the wife. And there are more horror stories than you would like to hear about what happens when the wife moves into the home and the mother doesn't want to give up her son. And that, I mean, there's even traditions that the, that the daughter-in-law is the slave of the mother-in-law. I mean, it's, it's barbaric and it has nothing to do with true sanat and dharma. And it is not truly representative of true Indian culture, but it's common. So Swamiji says... A, a mother is more likely to enjoy the addition of a son to her family and not see it as a threat to her, his, her relationship with her daughter. Whereas the mother of the son is threatened by the wife. Mess, isn't it? I mean, it's just so simple. It's, it's such a, a simple thought. In fact, the Vedas say that the closest human relationship is between a mother and a son. Isn't that interesting? I mean, who knows? I've talked to women who are the parents of multiple children of both sexes. And most of the time when I've said that, the woman will, she knows at least what's implied by that. And sometimes when a woman is carrying a male child, um, she develops an aversion to her husband because the son wants the mother all to himself. That was actually how it was first brought up because this woman who was pregnant and it turned out with a son really was finding her husband quite irritating. <laughs> and that was when Swami said, you know, this is in the Vedas. This isn't just like made up. It's just there's so much, there's so much wisdom in the culture of India. So having gone through all of this, let's, let's go back. 
even when people think about married life, you know, they don't think of the solid duty. Okay, no, let's start with. Marriage becomes duty, and it becomes a destiny that has to be fulfilled. It's your place in society. It's the woman's obligation to have children. Um, in the case of a king, it's very necessary that you have sons. Although actually, was Krishna actually the king? It seems to me in that course of that conversation, there was some discussion about whether he actually ruled or didn't rule, but I, I've lost that. But in any case, you know, it's necessary to give sons. It's necessary to raise them all. I mean, just all of these things are quite required. And sometimes the wife becomes an alliance, a political alliance, and so on like that. So, so you're not dealing with the freedom of a pure love relationship. The, and the wife has to be chosen for many reasons. Whereas the ideal of romantic love is completely free of all of those realities, which is why so many marriages that start with you know intense romantic love fall to pieces on the shoals, on the rocks of everyday life and the coming of children and the necessity to make a home and the annoying relatives. I mean, all of that, all of that is the story of husband and wife, which is not nearly as gorgeous as the idea of pure romantic love. So there wasn't much that could be made into the the instructive story that would come from the story of, of Radha. And presumably Radha was really there. But romantic love, we have to understand, is not physical love. Because you're not really talking about physical passion. By, by definition, um, the pure kind of love that is talked about as above. And it's not because sex is evil. It's because it's a physical thing. And it's, it's completely of the body. And if we're so identified with the body as to be compelled by the hormonal drives of the gender that we're in, we're not operating on the level of Bob. We're just operating on the level of human love, which is not terrible. We're operating on the level of sexuality, which is not terrible. It just is what it is. It, there it is. And you can't really speak of Radha and Krishna in those terms because there's no possibility that the kind of uh, divine love that they had would uh, manifest in such, and the only word for it is gross form. Gross meaning not subtle. Not, uh, not abhorrent, but just not subtle. It's too subtle for that. So that's what is really meant by... Um, romantic love is above so it had to be Radha it couldn't have been anyone else so anyway I thought that was a very interesting question a very interesting conversation any thoughts questions or comments on that and so then we have Master's story because all the gopis were in love with Krishna but he he seemed to favor Radha so they got jealous because romantic love also has jealousy I mean the, all the epic stories of romantic love is oh there's always the lover's spat and then the the um, reunion after the lover's spat. I mean this is all the way that that stories are spun so that lessons can be learned. 
because even though we have this story of Radha's incredible self-sacrificing nature, there's another story where Radha developed a desire for Krishna to carry her. And so he, you know, he carried her for a time and then he suddenly disappeared and she fell to the ground. And he um, instructed her, you know, what are you asking for? You're asking for something so petty. I'm, I'm giving you infinite love and you want me to carry your physical body, you know, in this sort of romantic image. Master actually said, though, he said, you have to be careful about the stories of Radha and Krishna because um, most of them are allegorical, but the allegories can get confused by human interpretation. So it's, it's and I, if I'm not mistaken, is it in this book? I believe it is that Master cautioned Swami or cautioned the monks that Radha Krishna wasn't the ideal thing for them to focus on because the mind could slip so easily into a... a, a a lower expression of what they really had together. So even also the fact that they never saw each other again after he left. I mean, there's lots of different ways to think about it, but that that doesn't mean he forgot her or she forgot him. And and the other gopis were, even though they were jealous of Radha at different times, the the beautiful what's called the Rasalila, um, the the dance with the the gopis. And all the paintings, there's many paintings of it. You have all these gopis, and each one of them has Krishna for a partner. So you have Krishna, 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 Krishna. So that even though there's, you know, dozens of gopis, every gopi thinks that Krishna's there only, that Krishna's only with her. Not that she's looking to see that he's not, but he's with her. But each one of them has Krishna all to, all to herself, because that, that's beautifully symbolic that the Lord is infinite and loves each one of us individually. So from time to time you have these other stories of their jealousy of Radha. But in fact, there was a sufficient Krishna for everyone. So they're, you know, they're just lovely. Okay, why don't we take a short break? During the break, um, the question came up is, why did I say that the romantic Bob is dicey? <laughs> Which is, I think, what I said or something like that. Um, it's because it's very hard. The reason that was spoken, and I believe I was quoting Master rather than, or, or at least in something like something he said. I, I didn't just make that up. Let me put it that way. That was not the gospel according to Asha. I don't really actually have a source, but I know that's been spoken uh, by someone other than me. Um, it's because it's very hard for us to have an actually transcendent idea of romantic love, of a, of what would be con- usually considered a male-female or a, or a masculine-feminine, whether because uh, the the well, it's even that it's even the fact that we're gender identified. Let me let me try to think how to say this. It's one of the reasons why Master rarely spoke about soulmates, because most people would take soulmates into into romantic love and then they would take it into passionate physical love in their ideal. In our society now, passionate sexual love is ideal love. And everything is focused, you know, toward passionate physical love, which is very short-sighted because it's a very specific period of life. And, you know, I know people are always trying to extend that specific period of life 
but it's a specific period of life because that's the way we're made and our physical bodies are helping us to um, progress rather you know we fight it now with surgery and drugs but it's also trying to help us to progress it's it's a complicated thing that I'm not going to speak at great length about except it it, it uh, when we're talking about soulmates, we're not talking about um, uh, any uh, physical passion by its very definition is is going to interfere with the kind of union that Master was really talking about. But people will immediately bring it down to what they're more accustomed to. As Master said, if he talked more about soulmates, everyone would forget about God and just stand on the corner waiting to meet their soulmate because there is this extraordinary inner compelling call as Swami said to be loved personally and Swami's actual in the context of soulmates said that it's impossible to believe that God would would plant the desire as Swami said to be loved not only impersonally by God but personally by one other person that God would make that desire so deep within us if he didn't also have within creation the power to fulfill it. And the sort of passionate physical love that people think of in that way, is, and, and that doesn't mean that because there's a physical element to it that the relationship is defined or limited by that. But what Master was talking about, because Master said, in, in fact, everyone has a soulmate, and before you you reach final liberation, you 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 meet your soulmate. Now, of course, you probably meet your soulmate many many times. It's confusing. Swamiji also wrote the book on that subject, called uh, "Love Perfected, Life Divine," which is again is a novel that he adopted adapted from someone else's novel, but it's the story of a perfect divine love. And in that story, the man and the woman meet and separate many times over many incarnations. And the essence of that story is they're constantly drawn to each other. And time after time, I I mean, presumably every once in a while they have a, a good karma life, so to speak. But time after time, something interferes. And the promise, uh, the, the promise of fulfillment that they feel with one another is made impossible by their own actions. And so the plot of the story is that eventually the man, first, as the plot goes, realizes that he must master himself because every time he, he, he comes close to this woman who is his soulmate, in some way or another, he does something. He's unable to hold the, the clarity and the, and the purity of what he knows he could have with her something interferes and he gradually realizes it's himself that's interfering. So he withdraws from their reincarnational cycle for an indeterminate period of time and sits at the feet of a great master and and masters himself, transcends himself. And now he is ready and so through a series of wonderful events, it's a marvelous story, he finds her but now he knows that he can't just leap into it with all the compulsions of his human nature. 
he has to exercise the, the, the courage of his divine nature and the self-mastery that he has gained. Now, she has also been highly, is highly developed spiritually, but not quite as highly developed as he. And so they realize together that she now has to um, come back to him at the same level that he's now reached. So they separate for a time. She goes to sit at the feet of that master. She faces all these extraordinary tests. And it's, it's a magnificent story of all the tests she has to face and the courage she has to show. And, the, and you know, she, she makes it. And then after she passes through literally the wall of fire, um, then they get to be together because now they've both reached a level where, where no selfish interest will interfere and they can love each other as God loves them. It's, you know, it's just a great story. And that's what romantic love is. It's called Love Perfected, Life Divine. It's really, I, I actually, I read it as an audio book. As an audio book, I did that because I, I don't know, I wanted to. I didn't realize that there's like 25 characters in there and half of them are men. I got myself way into something. Nobody ever buys it, so I, it's available for free on my ashajoy.com. I'm just saying this because maybe now somebody will unload, download it. But I did it because I, it's a beautiful book about true love. And not, not romantic love, but just true love. And uh, I, I just wanted to be part of that story, I think, so I read it. You see, also because it's a female protagonist, Swami couldn't have read it himself. The story's told in the first person by the female character. I don't know why, I just felt to read it. And for me, reading it was a magnificent experience because I got so deep into what, it was, what the story was really about. So I learned the fact that nobody listens to it is incidental. I, I got what I wanted from doing it. Okay, so having said all of that, it's a wonderful book to read. It's filled with extraordinarily beautiful language and ideas. And it's not really about romance. It's about true love. Um, so, dicey, the word dicey, is that once we allow ourselves to enter into that romantic bhav, we have to make sure that we're not just pulling ourselves down into a, the wrong kind of longing. So it's, it's just a fine line. And I, it's not anything I'm in any way qualified to advise or comment on more than that. But it, it just is there, and that's a fact. Sometimes we, we fool ourselves, and we have to be a little careful. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a good thing the question was asked. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's... it's it's greatly misunderstood in the West, that Bob. Who knows? Okay, now, then number 408, which is very short by contrast. Master says, the mind is like a rubber band. The more you pull on it, the further it will stretch. <laughs> and I presume he means that in a complimentary way. <laughs> that the capacity and the abilities of the mind are infinitely greater than people realize. But if we don't um, challenge the mind, we'll, we remain small-minded. 
instead of becoming large-minded and broad-minded. So, you know, there's, he has lots of practical advice in other places about not going to sleep. The great difficulty in life is that so many people just get old and they run out of steam and they run out of interest and they run out of enthusiasm. So it's a, it's a waste of, of a lot of years of your incarnation once we've reached the stage of adulthood and independence and especially if we become devotees, but even just of anything, to just sort of reach a certain point of development and then just try to hunker down and outlast it. Because as Swami said, almost everyone has to reincarnate again. Then you have to go through all the childhood years and everything. I mean, babies are so incredibly helpless. Another one of my friends was a serious meditator. He said, after his son was born, he said, most new parents become less diligent about their sadhana. He said he became absolutely, absolutely fixed on it because he actually saw what it meant to reincarnate in a baby's body. <laughs> and he just saw how helpless and impossible it was and how long it would be before his son would actually be able to really do something with his life. And he really wanted to skip as much of that <laughs> as he could. But uh, people also just mentally go to sleep. And it's it's when I turned when I crossed over fifty, um, I I could really feel it. I could feel it as a temptation, is the way I would put it. I could feel this temptation, just sort of encouraging me, to lower my energy, and not strive so hard, for self mastery. And I I felt it also as a, at least in my life. Happiness at that point had to become an act of will. It was not just the spontaneous expression of youthful exuberance, which it had been for a very long time. I developed, this is the gospel according to Asha, this is nobody else's story. I developed the soccer ball kick, the drop kick theory of spiritual growth, which is that when we incarnate, God does a drop kick like they do in soccer where they hold the ball and then they drop it and they kick it and it goes way in the air, you know, way far goes way in the air and then it hits the ground and then it bounces and then it rolls. I mean, there's this huge momentum. And in my, in my 50s, somewhere in my early 50s, um, it was, I, I realized that I, I had been riding the momentum, and I could call it youth, but I'd been riding the momentum of sort of that I came into this life with. And, it, and the ball soared, and the ball covered a lot of distance. <clears throat> then it bounced, <clears throat> slowing down, but it was still rolling. But I almost felt like it had just stopped. And that it wasn't going to be automatic from that point. From that point, I had to make a very conscious decision as to how I wanted the rest of my life to go. Did I want it to be di- as dynamic as the first half had been, or did I want to just gradually you know, give up. And I realized, looking around me and using my common sense, that many people at that stage of life just, and that, you know, if they haven't lived, if they haven't followed the rules of health, then it may in fact be that their bodies begin to um, degenerate to the point where they don't have as much energy, physical energy, or actual illnesses begin to manifest. I, by the grace of God, and actually, I finally figured it out because I've probably had a lot of ill health in my life. I've, been, I've tried to be conscientious about my health since before I was 20. 
but just I have I have good DNA apparently at least so far so it wasn't it wasn't imposed upon me that I had to weaken at that point but I could feel feel it as a temptation just to not strive especially because I was going striving against more resistance than I'd had to strive against so I I made the decision and I've held to it as best I can ever since then but this is exactly what he says the mind the more we're capable of much more if we just keep stretching instead of saying well I've got it made now and I'll look for an easy road and a lot of times in a materialistic society like ours um, people actually envision their lives that way I'll work really hard for a while and then I'll just play you know I won't necessarily serve I won't necessarily grow I'll just play. I'll have earned the right to just play. But often, as soon as you stop stretching the mind, he doesn't say it, but it starts shrinking almost automatically. Because you can't stand still. The second law of thermodynamics, everything is going toward chaos. (laughs) Everything is, is slowing down and falling apart. All right. Number 409. Any comments or thoughts on that? Did I talk about that here? No, I talked about that in one of my talks in India about thermodynamics. I don't know why. It must have been a class about healing. That's what it was. It was from Master's book about healing. From Master's book about healing? Maybe it was... Oh, I think... No, no, no. It's the Raja Yoga course in the section called Life is a Battle. And it's Swamiji who talks about... this. Which, I mean, what I know about the second law of thermodynamics is what I read in the Raja Yoga book. But it is a a, a law of the physical universe that everything is slowing down and and going toward disintegration. And so if we do nothing, if we do nothing to maintain momentum and to increase integration, the forces of even just the physical world will pull us toward, toward slower disintegration. Yeah, entropy, whatever. Yeah, it's a word I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, so this is the opposite of that that Master's saying here. So he's implying a lot with a few sentences, two sentences. Okay, number 409, Master says, these are all just full quotes from Master. I sometimes wonder why people thank God for the gift of life this is, Master was so, he just was so unsentimental and he just, uh, Swamiji talked about specifically, he has objected to way, the way Self-Realization Fellowship edits Master's words. He said uh, he feels that they have, have tried to water him down to the point where he won't make ripples. You know, there won't be any ripples, uh, controversial Result, Swami said, how can an avatar not make ripples? (laughs) He said, he comes here to just blow apart our delusion. And so he says, this was one of those. Master says, I sometimes wonder why people thank God for the gift of life. Master puts that in quote, gift of life. What kind of gift is that? (laughs) I tell him, I didn't ask you to create me. But since you've done so, 
um, all I ask is, release me. <laughs> Get me out of this mess. <laughs> I mean, Swami's just telling it like Master said it. I mean, think about the personality that would just um, speak so boldly against the sentimental thought that people are always saying. I mean, it's a, it's a big... And of course, on other occasions, Master can also speak to you know, gratitude to God and, and various things. But Master was not sentimental. And for most people, life is not a gift. It's, it's uh, a nightmare. So, and also he said, um, I didn't ask you to create me. It's like, this is not a gift. I didn't put it on my list. I didn't make a, a list that said, please expel me from paradise and, you know, force me to live like a witless surf, as Swami put it once. <laughs> that was Swami's comment when he was uh, in, in the path, when he tried to read the Bible from the beginning. And he, that was his interpretation of the Adam and Eve story, that, you know, that God made them do this terrible thing and expelled them from paradise, and as a result, they had to live forever as witless serfs, he said. <laughs> he said, what kind of a God would do that? I mean, that was... Just his, the way he appraised the story. And then he references that later he learned from Master this deeply allegorical interpretation of what the Adam and Eve story really is. But the fact is, we didn't ask to be created. And so why would, would he be so grateful for having been created? Say again. I, yes. I didn't ask. I didn't ask for this. She was saying, as children say to their parents, "Yeah, so, yeah." I didn't ask to be born. Now I've I've said that the other way. This one particular woman I know, she's now, you know, well into her life, but um, she's the. I I I was I understood the circumstances of both her conception and her birth, and the. Um, circumstances into which she was born which were difficult very difficult for her mother and therefore somewhat difficult for her and you know she has maintained a certain sense that her mother's responsible for certain negative experiences that she's had she would not hear me but I have wanted to say to her honey you pushed yourself into that situation. <laughs> Trust me, you were not invited. <laughs> but of course, how can you say that? <laughs> it's like, but she did. And she, you know, she wanted to be born into those circumstances. It, I mean, her mother welcomed her with her whole heart. Her mother was thrilled to be her mother because she's that kind of woman. But it was an after-the-fact kind of happiness, and it's unfair you know, it's unfair for the child to blame the parents. They didn't force you to incarnate. You did it yourself. However, that's slightly different here. But why did, we, why, why did the option even arise? Why did we have to come into the material world? I mean, Master himself can only give allegorical explanations to this. But he just cuts right through the sentimentality. But see, this is also, this is actually very serious Vedanta philosophy. Because we have to understand the limitations of this world until we really understand the limitations of an ego-based reality we will not do what is necessary to transcend the ego 
We'll just keep hoping that if the ego works hard enough, it'll get itself organized and it'll organize its world and we'll have what we want without ever actually having to transcend that limited identity. Um, A woman came to this church. She came a few times and then one Sunday after service, she said to me, I've been to a lot of New Age churches where they talk about overcoming the ego, but I think you people really mean it. (laughs) And she didn't last. I mean, people do talk about overcoming the ego, but they don't really mean it. What they mean by that is getting it functioning to the point where they can get what they want. It means getting my way, because, of course, my way is a good way, and so I'll just organize myself and align myself, and then I'll get what I want. That's not transcending the ego. That's using the ego to try to use divine law to fulfill your desires, which is a stage. It's not like it's a bad thing, because we have to develop we have to develop our capacity to understand where energy and success comes from, develop the willpower and the discipline necessary to do it, because we, as long as we imagine that if we had these certain things, we would be happy, we will continue to pursue those things. Circumstances, people, relationships, whatever it is. As long as we believe that if I only had that, I would be fulfilled, we, w- we will not seek anything else. We will not try to transcend it. So as Swamiji said, we learn from being disappointed, but we learn more from being fulfilled. And that's why eventually all those desires have to be fulfilled. Otherwise, you think, I need it to be happy, or I would be happy if. And hard as it it may be to have those perfect relationships and all that money and that wonderful home, as long as we think it's going, we'll just keep incarnating again and again. Swami said that, a master said, that's Satan's trick. It's not that it, is that it almost works. And so we just think if we tweaked it just a little, if it was a total catastrophe, we would learn much faster, but it's not a total catastrophe. There's a lot of nice things. Sometimes when I speak too strongly about the nightmare of this life, I get emails from people listing all the beautiful things they are about life yeah, I know, I can list it too. I'm trying to make a point, you know. But, so anyway, so, so Master, with complete, says, but since you've done so, which is, you know, created me, all I ask is release me, get me out of this mess. That's his point of view about this beautiful world. You've put, you've, this mess you've put me in, We didn't come into existence because of any grace of his. He puts the word grace in italics. (laughs) We didn't come into existence because of any grace of his. We are as eternal as he is, and that's a really interesting point, isn't it? It's that we are part of God. We are infinite in our nature. We are as old as God. It's not like he did something nice for us. There is no he in us. There's only one reality. Hard to get the... Uh, egoic mind around that. The soul is coexistent with the spirit. I love it when Swamp, when Master uses words like that. Coexistent. The soul is coexistent with the spirit, meaning the infinite. Sometimes I like, Master says, lovingly of course, to scold God. Why did you force us to wander about in delusion? Master says. He doesn't mind it when I ask 
when I talk to him like that. He has to get us out if we call to him with deep love. Isn't that a marvelous? He has to get us out, meaning he has to liberate us if we call to him with deep love. You know, Swamiji asked Master once, um, since the idea is to lose all inclination for this world, why aren't suicides liberated? Because a suicide person really has no inclination for this world. But Master sort of, I don't think Master laughed because it's not a laughing subject, but he said, no, no, it's not enough to have a negative rejection. You must also have a positive aspiration for God. You have to see that this world is not what we hoped it would be because what we hoped it would be does exist, but it exists um, in, an, in another, through an, another means of fulfillment than the means of fulfillment that the world gives. Does that make sense? And so the, what we have to do is we have to awaken. Uh, we, have to, we have to be develop the awareness to perceive the, the actual source of both our longing and its fulfillment. Because this world gives us the impression that all we need is, and then we make a list. Whether it's money or romance or um, comfort or recognition or power, you know, or, rele- or um, comfort, I may have said that. But you, whatever it is, we have to realize that no, none of those things are either the source of my longing or my fulfillment. And then we have to dedicate ourselves to that actual fulfillment. And that comes through this experience. What can we say? But, you know, the, when we truly look at it the way it is, I mean, Master's way of an- analyzing it is really valid. Get away from my ocean of suffering. It's very confusing. It, it, it's not the words. The words are insufficient to actually express because there's a tremendous amount of subtlety there. But but comments like that one of the, this one we just read of Master really open our thinking to a wholly other way of looking at it. We mustn't be afraid. We mustn't feel protective of our little way of thinking. We must have the courage to have Master say things as bold as he said and enjoy them and not shrink away from them. We might not be able to embrace them wholeheartedly, but we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't lack the courage at least to look right at it and, and wonder what it would feel like to be that free. All right. Okay, that's it for tonight. Do you have a pencil? So we did um, we did four oh seven, four oh eight and four oh nine.